Well, there is a story of a small town uh, that was historically dry, uh, which for those of you who don't know what that means, that means they did not have any alcohol in town. They could not sell alcohol. And so there was this businessman that came along and decided that he wanted to open up a bar. And so he builds this bar, and uh, the local Christians are not happy about this bar coming in, and so they schedule a 24-hour prayer meeting uh, go, going long into the night to pray that God would intervene into this uh, situation that they find themselves in. Well, a few days later, a lightning strikes the bar, and the bar burns down. Uh, the bar owner is not very happy about this, uh, and so he uh, files a lawsuit against the church for the bar burning down. And so, of course, the Christians hire their own lawyer to defend themselves and say they are not at all responsible for the bar burning down. And so they get into their initial hearing with the judge, and, and the judge says, I, I don't really know how this is all going to play out, but what I do know is that the bar owner believes in prayer, and the Christians do not. <laughs> all kidding aside... There's a little bit of sting to that story because there are things that we pray for and then it actually happens and we're surprised. Like, how could that have happened? Because you asked for it. Or there are other times that uh, we just don't ask. Or times that we ask, but in the back of our heads, we know there is no way anything could really happen in this situation. I'm going to pray for it because I know that's the right thing to do. But God's not going to answer this prayer. We found, we've found ourselves in all of those situations before. We pray not really thinking anything's going to happen. We pray and we're surprised and shocked by the outcome. And so we're continuing on in this story of Acts. This story where we have seen these, this early Jesus movements be incredibly successful, but also these moments of failure and weakness as well. It's kind of been going back and forth between stories, reminding us that, that God is at work in this movement, but there's also this humanity that falls short of what God calls us to. Times where the church is incredibly successful, times where they mess up, times where they miss the mark on what God has called them to do. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 12 today, if you want to be turning there, continuing on this journey and we're going to see some of these two extremes as well. Incredible faithfulness, but also some failure as well. So let's read Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met the approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for a public trial after the Passover. All right, so we have this 
dramatic scene unfolding before us again. Now, this is a different Herod from when Jesus was born, but this Herod is, is still a representative of the Roman Empire, a, a representative of Caesar, ruling over the people. His job was to serve the Roman Empire. And to do that, he needed to make sure that the Jewish people were happy, that the Jewish people were peaceful. And so this Herod did everything that he could to be friendly with the Jews, to keep peace, to keep the calm. He liked to please them, and he was popular among them, relatively speaking, for a tyrant. But the Jesus movement had been growing in Jerusalem and even beyond Jerusalem. This new church, this, the, the way of Jesus, had been growing, and, and it had become increasingly a source of anxiety for the Jewish leadership. And anxiety in the Jewish leadership is not good for Herod. And so he does what he thinks can be done, and he starts to round up the leaders of this movement and executes James. Imagine the heartache among the church as one of their key leaders has been arrested and executed. And so there is this stress, this sadness, this anxiety. And then you add on top of that, now Peter has been arrested. And Peter is in prison, and most certain to have the same fate as James. But it's Passover, and so they can't have a trial. And so they wait, and Peter's put on lockdown. Now, this isn't the first time Peter's in prison, right? In Acts chapter 5, Peter's in prison as well, and escapes then. And so they know that Peter is a flight risk, and so they have got to make sure that he is under lock and key. And so they have 16 guards guarding him to make sure that he stays put, that there will be no miraculous exit at this point. He's physically chained to the guards. Verse 5, So Peter was kept in prison, but the church earnestly was earnestly praying to God for him. We've got this big but in the middle of the sentence. Peter's in prison, but Peter's in prison, but but the church is still earnestly praying. The church didn't plan a political rally. The church did not plan uh, to hire an attorney. They did not raise a sword. The first and most important thing that they do is they pray. And so the church responds in prayer to God. This Jesus movement uh, advances not by the raising of swords, as Peter in the garden thought when he cut off the ear. No, this movement is going to advance by raising hands in prayer. And they are praying earnestly. It's this word earnestly catches my attention here. Earnestly, it's this word that, that means to, to stretch out, to go beyond, to pray without ceasing. This earnestly is this, this ongoing, emotionally and physically engaging prayer. This, this reaching out, raising of hands, or, or stretching out prostrate in front of God. 
There's a physical act to this prayer as they are earnestly begging God to intervene with Peter being in prison. Earnestly they are praying, stretching out. And of course, they're stretching out emotionally as well because James has been executed. And I can assume that they had the same prayer meeting for James. And it did not go as plans. And so now, this emotional, earnest prayer for Peter that God would intervene. Have you ever begged God for something? Like really, really begged God? And in those moments, can you just sit still? Maybe you get up and pace Maybe you get on your knees. Maybe you stretch yourself out laying before God as you beg earnestly for God to intervene. They are stretching out in prayer. Verse 6, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. He is surrounded. He is physically chained. He is on death row, and he is sleeping. Peter's asleep. I couldn't even sleep last night with the wind outside. And here Peter is sleeping, chained to guards, knowing that he is headed the same direction as James with execution. Now, if you remember back in our gospel stories, in Mark chapter 4, there's this story about the disciples being in a boat, and this great storm comes, and the boat is being thrown all over the place, and Jesus is sleeping. And who gets mad at Jesus for sleeping in the storm. Peter. And here Peter is sleeping in his own storm. This really is the essence of discipleship. When we talk about discipleship, we're not just talking about intellectual learning. We're not just talking about Bible trivia. We're not just talking about more knowledge. When we talk about discipleship, we mean being like their master, being like the one that we follow. And here Peter is taking on the characteristics of Jesus, becoming like the one that he follows. That he is at peace and can sleep through his storm. Later in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hands, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Peter, in prison, later writes this. He's experienced this, sleeping at rest, casting all anxiety on God. Verse 7, Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. This wasn't enough to wake him up, and so he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, 
and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought that he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to an iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. And then Peter, standing there, and comes to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. (laughs) This scene is almost comedic. As you see Peter being released from prison. And we see that, that nothing can prevent the movement of God. Nothing can stop God. Not even the chains in prison. And so Peter passes through two sets of guards. He passes through an iron gate. He gets all the way down a street, and he doesn't know it's real. He doesn't know it's really happening. He thinks it's a vision, and then he's left standing there at the end of the street like, oh, God did something here. And so it reminds us that as we pray for things, there can often be lag time between God actually working and us realizing that God is working. That we're praying, and we're asking, and we're pleading, and we're begging, and we're wondering why God isn't doing anything. And then we get to the end of the streets and wake up and realize he's been working all along that we pray and we beg. We don't always see what God is doing to get us to the other side of prison. Continue on, verse 12. When When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people were gathered and they were praying. This is where they're praying earnestly for Peter. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door, and when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she didn't open the door, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door! And they respond, You're crazy! You're out of your mind, they told her. And she kept insisting that it was so. And they said it must be his angel. And so the very people who were earnestly praying to God, begging for God to intervene on Peter's behalf, they're sitting in this room continuing to pray, and Peter's knocking on the door, and they're not recognizing it. They're not listening to all the signs of an answered prayer. They're still locked up in their prayer room praying. And of all times for this to be happening, this is Passover, the very holiday where, they are sh- where they're celebrating and remembering the deliverance of Israel from Egyptian captivity. 
They are walking through the story with one another, walking through what has happened in their history, seeing how God has worked in such incredible ways, but only see that happening in the past and not in the presence. That God is moving in their midst. God is answering their prayers. And they're not seeing it. These stories are not here just to tell us about how powerful God was, but how powerful God is. That He is still just as powerful today as He was then. We're mindful of Luke chapter 4, verse 18, where Jesus talks about His ministry. He quotes Isaiah and says, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recover, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. Jesus said this about himself, and here they are praying that God would intervene, and Peter is freed, he is set free, he is oppressed, and now released, and they need more convincing. And so will the church open the door to receive the one who has been set free? The prison doors open. Will their door be open? Verse 16, but Peter kept knocking. Good thing he's persistent. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. And so Peter comes in, and his deliverance is not the end. He gives them a quick testimony of what has happened, and then he goes on and continues on with the mission. Verse 18, in the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers. You think? They've woken up, and here he is gone. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered them to be executed. And then we have this concluding story of Herod. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. So Herod goes out and does all this political maneuvering. And then verse 21, on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. And they shouted, This is the voice of a God, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. So interesting episode here. As we see the church earnestly praying, we see Peter escaping and continuing on in this mission. What happens to Herod? He addresses the people. Of course, we don't really care what Herod has to say, so Luke doesn't give us any of his words. 
Herod addresses the crowd, and everybody looks to him as if he is a god, and Herod loves this attention. But in his arrogance, he's humbled. In his arrogance, he becomes food for worms. Mary had warned of this in her Magnificat, this song that she sings in the beginning of Luke, where she says that the proud shall be humbled in this new kingdom of God. That God, not kings, not rulers, not those with power, God will have the last word. And so we see Herod being silenced, being humbled, and God has the last word. We have this final line of hope in verse 24. It says, the word of God continued to spread and flourish. This is another one of those times where, where Luke talks about the success of the church, that even in the midst of what's going on here, even with the execution of James, even with the imprisonment of Peter, even with the rule of Herod, God still reigns. God is still in control, and the gospel continues to spread and flourish, that nothing will hinder the gospel. Of course, eventually Peter is executed, but God continues to rule. The gospel continues unhindered. And so we look at this story and we see this example of the church and what they're doing, how they're behaving. And we see a couple different things here. One is, is we see that prayers are not the last resort. Prayers are the first action. And I think so many times we, we often exhaust all of the different options and then we finally get around to prayer. It's like all these other things are not working, so now I'm going to try prayer and maybe that will work. And we see prayer is the first option, not the last option. These disciples were earnestly praying. They were stretched out in prayer. They, they were disciples in the truest way because they were becoming like their master. They were following the example of Jesus. Jesus never taught his followers how to preach. He never taught his followers how to teach. He taught them how to pray. Jesus and his disciples knew how to pray. His disciples never said, Lord, teach us how to preach. His disciples never said, Lord, teach us how to do church. His disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And throughout Jesus' ministry, we see Jesus getting up early in the morning to pray and staying up late to pray and dismissing people away so that he could pray. The prayer was the first thing. Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He taught us to pray. He cleared out the temple so that others could pray. And he didn't say, My house will be called a house of great preaching. He did not say, My house will be called a house of great fellowship or great singing. 
He didn't say our house will be called a house of, of great Sunday school. He said, my house will be called a house of prayer. And so we see the people modeling this, becoming like Jesus, earnestly praying. Jesus came to make it possible, not just for us to, to be able to have access to heaven after we die, but to have access to heaven now, to have access to, to the reign and rule of the kingdom of God now. The God is moving now. And we have access to that. God doesn't call us just to preach without ceasing. He doesn't call us to teach without ceasing. He calls us to pray without ceasing. Prayer is the first resort. But the other thing that we see in this story, and it's part of the kind of the comedic element of it, is, is faith involves more than prayer. It also requires getting up and answering the door. Like you've got to open the door. You've got to be obedient to do your part because you can be praying and praying and praying and not open the door. Part of prayer is opening the door as he knocks and he knocks and he knocks, trying to answer your prayer, but you won't open the door. And so we can pray and beg God to intervene in our lives, but we also have to step up and be obedient to what we know we need to be doing anyway. And so we can, we can pray that God would deliver us from addiction, but we need to open the door and go to a recovery group. We can pray that God will reconcile a relationship, but we've got to pick up the phone and talk to the person. We can pray and beg and plead that God will improve our marriage, but we've got to take the steps to improve our marriage. There are steps that we have to take as we pray and plead and beg with God. We have to get the door. Because God is working in these ways that we're not seeing because we're not looking. And so when we pray for things, will we do our part? Will we be obedient to where God is working, following where God is moving? And so faith is about getting on the floor in prayer, stretched out in prayer, but we also have to get up and open the door. And so as we gather this morning, every, every Sunday we have a time of prayer. But for this morning, I want us to have a little bit more time of prayer, an extended time of prayer where, where we spend some moments of earnest stretching, stretched out in prayer. For some of us, stretching out in prayer may just uh, be praying longer than we've prayed before. 
For some of us, stretching in prayer is, is praying in the midst of disappointment and pain, not seeing how God is working. For some of us, stretching out is, is moving beyond our apathy and our indifference, where we have just started coasting in our spirituality. Our prayer life is just coasting. And so stretching out is, is moving beyond that apathy that we've found ourselves in. There's a variety of things. We all come at different places. We're in different seasons of life, and stretching for each of us is very different. We're facing different things. But what does it look, look like to earnestly pray, earnestly ask for God to intervene in these things? And so we're going to have some time. We're going to have prayer leaders around. We'll have um, shepherds down front. We've got some people from our prayer teams. I've asked uh, some of our life group leaders if they would be available to pray as well. And so they're going to be moving around the room. If, let's go ahead and be standing. And I, I really want you to, to think about what, what it is that's going on in your life. And it could be something really small. It doesn't have to be being in prison. We're not, it, it doesn't have to be this extreme thing. It can, be, it can be small things as well. But I really want to encourage you to seek out prayer. And so if you're, if you're here available for prayer, if you could um, kind of stand out in the back or down in the front. Um, Carlene is here. Matt is here. Uh, different people are available. Mark Stevens is back there. We've got some life group leaders. Karen is headed back there. I want you to seek somebody out and pray with somebody as we earnestly stretch out before the Lord. We earnestly stretch out. And so I want there to be some freedom in this time. We're not, we're not really um, moving kind of people, right? Like this is kind of raising our hands. And so I want there to be freedom to stretch out Whatever that stretching looks like, that stretching may look like sitting. That stretching may look like coming to the front and kneeling. That stretch may be standing in the back with your hands raised. It may be embracing friends, family. Whatever that stretching is for you, let's stretch this morning as we pray together. We're going to just have quiet time. We're going to spend about four or five minutes in this prayer time, so, so feel free to move around. And once we get to kind of a place of settled, uh, the praise team is going to uh, sing and lead us in another um, song. So let's, let's pray together. God, we, we thank you for these stories. God, we are reminded that these stories show that you are powerful now, not just then. And so, God, we beg with you, we plead with you that you would intervene in the situations in our life. We pray for physical healing. We pray for emotional healing. We pray for, for reconciliation relationships. We pray for employment. God, we pray for kids, and we pray for families. God, we pray for this neighborhood. God, would you come and move in this place? And give us eyes to see where you're working. God, give us the courage to be obedient. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Let's go ahead and move around as we pray together.